Tonight, we're going to start a short, probably about, a, well, I know it'll be seven-part series on the seven deadly sins. This is a different kind of study than I've ever done before, um, but it's something I, I, I hopefully it'll be helpful for you. But you know, the, the, the concept of sin is in some ways wasted on the modern American mind, just the, even the idea of sin. And I say that because we're living in, in the midst of a generation that really doesn't even know what sin is. They, they have no understanding even of the vocabulary of virtue, uh, you know. Uh, and so, you know, way back in 1973, which it's hard to believe that that was 51 years ago, but way back in 1973, psychiatrist Dr. Carl Menninger, who's not, not particularly a Christian, he wrote a book called Whatever Became of Sin. And in his book, he argues that society has lost the concept of sin, but not the practice of it. And his thesis is that society has moved away from calling things sin and instead calls them symptoms, sickness, and crimes. And he also predicted in 73 that the term sin, and I think we're looking back in history, this will bear it out, but he predicted that the term sin will be replaced with words like illness, Disorder, dysfunction, and syndrome. Now, he was not dealing with the subject from some profoundly New Testament aspect. and he, he, was, he was just dealing simply with the idea of helping people in counseling to accept the reality of personal responsibility. The truth is, the words, I have sinned, is often, those are often the three words that can help us begin to get well and to find healing in, in our lives, but often... We can't do that, especially in today's culture, because we don't understand sin. And we think we don't, we don't, many people don't even think sin existed at, at all. So in light of that, we're starting this new series of studies that addresses the issues, issue of sin. Now, in this series of studies, we're going to use an ancient list that arises from the Middle Ages that's called the seven deadly sins. Uh, how many of you have heard of the seven deadly sins before? It's probably a phrase a lot of us had heard of, and but I don't know that I've ever heard a series of studies on it. So I, so here we go. We're going to see how it goes. And uh, I, I think after we finish this study, by the way, I think the Lord's leading me. We might dive into the Gospel of John, which that is uh, rather daunting, but also exciting at the same time. But let me say this as at the offset, outset. I want to say a few things about the seven deadly sins as a whole, before we dive into the first one tonight. Uh, I'll say this. Th this is not a definitive or exhaustive list of quintessential sins. That's not what it is. We're not trying to say that these are like the big red seven and that anything else is less than that. It's not going to hurt you too badly. That's not what we're saying at all. I, I actually believe that most, if not all, sins are embraced by these seven categories of sin. So uh, uh, what, uh, when you talk about sin or sins, you know, specific sinful actions are what theolo theologians have a term for that. They call those atomic sins. Now, that doesn't mean that they're going to blow up in your face, you know, explode, although they, they probably will. But it means that those individual acts of sin exist like atoms do. Atoms are individual things that make up much bigger things. And so, uh, and so when, when you talk about atomic sins, you're talking about individual acts of sin. The truth is that a person could teach for a million years about individual acts of sin and not cover all of them, right? I mean, there's just too many to cover that. However, most of those, if not all of those, will be addressed in these seven basic categories. So uh, you might find this list uh, and, and with uh, using variations of, of individual words, but they'll all have the same idea. Let, let me just give you the list. If you're taking notes and you, and you, uh, then, uh, and then we'll, we'll look at these, then we'll begin on the first one. So the seven deadly sins are pride, envy, anger, or, or wrath as, as some list, uh, list it, sloth, which, by the way, embraces the, uh, it embraces the idea of laziness, but it's far more than that. Avarice, which is also a uh, word you might be more familiar with, is greed. Gluttony, and, and that, that's a fascinating one, because even the word gluttony uh, gets a laugh in America because 
The, the only way we think of gluttony is in terms of eating too much, but it has a great deal more implications to us in our life and into our culture. And then finally, the last one is lust. So let me give you that list one more time. Pride, envy, wrath or anger, sloth, avarice or greed, gluttony and lust. Now, all seven of these sins bring disorder and confusion into our lives. They they all deny limits to one extent or another. If you think about it, pride denies the limits of authority. Envy denies the, the limit of that which is appropriately, appropriately mine. Wrath denies the limits of appropriate responses. Sloth denies the limits of diligence and faithfulness. Avarice denies the limits of possession. Gluttony denies the limits of consumption. And lust denies the limits of relationships. And this list, comprehensively, all together, it ruins hope. Despair is always the result of these seven categories of sin. The reason, reason for that is because our lives are not meant to live under the domination of these sins. Therefore, when these sins have dominion over us, then our eternal hope in God begins to fade and we find despair taking hold in our lives. Let me give you a simple example to, to help you see what I'm talking about there. And then we'll begin tonight's teaching on pride. Think, think if you will, of a time in your life when you were walking right with God and your, your prayer life was in really in good order, your Bible study was disciplined, and you knew that you were in intimate relationship with God on a day-to-day basis, you're aware of His grace. Think, think of that for a moment. Do you remember in that time, and maybe that's where you are today, it could be the season you're in now, but do you remember that sense of discipline and order, that, that sense of purposefulness? Do you remember the the hope that you you felt for your life and for the world, and do you remember that you were happy during that time? You know, I've never known a, a, a backslidden Christian ever in my life who could think back to a time when he walked in an intimate relationship with God, when he walked in humble submission before God, who could say, "When I was really miserable, when it was when I was walking with God, now, and now that I've fallen into sin, I'm really happy." I've never known one. Now I've known people who only experienced religion, who said, now that I'm away from the church, I'm finally, I finally find, uh, you know, I don't feel so upset at that sort of thing. But I've never known anybody who truly knew Jesus, who later walked away and said, that was the time when I was really happy, uh, was, or now's the time when I'm really happy away from Jesus. Now, now remember a time in contrast to that, if you can, when you felt your relationship was, was drifting from God. Uh, and uh, maybe it was through deliberate sin, maybe it was through neglect, maybe sloth crept into your relationship with God and, and you, you dropped your Bible reading and your prayer life began to experience more frustration than fulfillment. Can you remember a time in your life like that? Or, or, or you know, hopefully you're not in a season like that, but maybe you are. Can you remember the sense of slightly panicked disorder? You know, when, when I think of those times in my life, I, uh, when, when I was most out of sync with God, I, th- those are the times I felt on edge. I, I, I had a kind of fearful confusion in my life, not sure uh, what was going to happen next or, or how I was going to handle it. And fear is always the advance guard of despair. And you, you could feel that rising sense of hopelessness and confusion and disorder. So, so have you been able to identify those two different seasons in your life? When, when you walked with God and you knew the happiness and fulfillment and the sense of satisfaction, satisfaction with God in the time when you were out of sync with God and you just couldn't seem to get in step in the, with the grace of God and you knew this disordered unhappiness. How many of you can clearly identify those times in your life? Okay, 95% of you and the other 5% of you are lying. So I hope you really show up on the week we talk about honesty. But, uh, but the fact of the matter is everybody who's honest with themselves cannot identify those two seasons. So here's the question. Because we know, we know what wandering from God and being out of sync with Him brings, and we know what walking with Him brings. So here's the question. Knowing that, why don't we stay in sync with God? Well, you know what? Being able to identify sin is not a 100% foolproof plan to defeat the power of sin in our lives. Even Paul, the apostle, struggled with the issue of operative sin in his fleshly body. Yet, I do believe that the more we can know about our enemy 
And the more we can know about our own weaknesses, then the more we can appropriate, appropriate grace at the specific, at specific points in our lives. So my hope for this series on, on the seven deadly sins is not that we'll simply gain intellectual knowledge for, for, because the, as we're going to even hear in the scripture tonight, because knowledge puffs up. Knowledge just makes you proud. But, but that instead, that each of us at at least one point or maybe at a multiplicity of points along the way, we will be able to feel that sort of rifle shot accuracy of the Holy Spirit. Have you ever felt that? Where he just zeroes in on you? Well, don't fight with God when that prick of conscience comes, that sting of the Holy Spirit, that feeling of conviction. Instead, instead of getting upset, instead of fighting, rejoice, because that is God saying to you, we're going to bring this into order. That is God saying to you, we're going we're gonna to bring this into godly discipline. We're going to bring this into, into the kind of hope and happiness and, that you want at this point in your life. And, you know, the truth is we often just simply don't want to hear about the issue of sin in our lives be, because it stings. You ever experienced that? We don't, we don't like it because it hurts. However, however, when it stings, instead of fighting it off or approaching it on simply intellectual grounds and when we do that, what we do is we sort of separate, separate ourselves from the real issue. Instead, just say, oh, God, speak to me. If there's pride in my life, speak to me. If there are levels of lust about which I've never really been honest or dealt with by the power of God, then, then Lord, speak to me. God, if I'm greedy or gluttonous or if I'm slothful, speak to me. Speak to me about the true condition of my heart. Because that and only that can bring life and revival out of what uh, will otherwise be. If we don't do that, it'll just be a dead lecture series. So with that said, let's take our Bibles now and turn to Isaiah chapter 14, if you will. Isaiah 14. The story of pride begins behind the veil of human history. It, it begins in the supernatural realm of the spiritual dimension before the dawn of human history, uh, before the first dew of the very first morning in the Garden of Eden, before Adam opened his eyes and, and beheld a pollution-free sky, but, but before then, far, far into the midst of the eternal spiritual dimension, the story of pride begins. Uh, Isaiah chapter 14, beginning in verse 12. How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. Some older translations just say Lucifer. That's the translation of that name. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to Sheol or, or the grave or hell, uh, depending on your translation, to the far reaches of the pit. Those who see you will stare at you and ponder over you. Is this the man who made the earth tremble, who shook kingdoms, who made the world like a desert and overthrew its cities, who did not let his prisoners go home? So here we have the birth of pride. The, the basic fundamental issue of all sin is pride. And from pride, all the other deadly sins draw their strength and their empowerment. Now, what does the Bible say about pride? There are a lot of things that we can learn. Number one, we know that God hates pride. Proverbs 8, 13, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil, pride and, and arrogance and the evil way and the perverse mouth. I hate, God says. Proverbs 16, 5, everyone who is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured he will not be unpunished. Now, that word abomination is reserved in both the Old and the New Testament, for the most heinous of all sins. Proverbs 15, 25, The Lord will destroy the house of the proud, but He will establish the border of the widow. So we, And we see in Proverbs 13, 10, that pride is connected to argumentation. Have you ever known anybody that was always ready, to, didn't matter what, they were going to argue with you? Have you known anybody, ever known anybody like that? That they always, you were wrong no matter what, and they were going to correct you no matter what. Ever know anybody? If you don't know anybody, just go on Facebook. You'll find them. They're there. I promise you. 
But, but here's the connection, Proverbs 13, 10. Only by pride comes contention, that is disagreement, argument, argument, argumentation, contending with one another. But with the well-advised is wisdom. Now, here's, here's what I want you to understand. When you read the book of Proverbs, this is something that will help you understand a lot of Proverbs and the connection there. Uh, uh, the, the book of Proverbs is largely written in what's called Hebrew parallelism. And what that means is often you'll have, it will, you'll have the first clause and then a second clause will follow that. Often that parallel will be the first clause and then it's repeated saying the same thing in a different way. Or the other thing that happens is they'll have the first clause and then the second clause will be the opposite of it. So that it shows you either by comparison or by contrast, uh, the real meaning there. So by knowing that, then inverting the first and the second half of most Proverbs, you can, you can see a comparison slash contrast of the first statement. So here it says, only by pride comes contention. Therefore, when you look at the second half, we see that to be well advised is the opposite of pride. How, how could that be? Well, if I'm pro, if I'm prideful, I don't want to listen to the, to the input of other people. So the opposite of pride is to be well advised. And, 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 and the wisdom then is the opposite of the foolish argumentation and bickering that's the result of pride. We, we see the, we see pride's connection with wrath in Proverbs 21, verse 24. Proud and haughty, scorner is, is his name who deals in proud wrath. Now we know that pride is not only hated by God, but I think more significantly than that even, pride is resisted by God. We see that in 1 Peter 5, 5 and James 4, 5 through 7. says this, Likewise, you younger ones, submit yourselves to the elders. Yes, all of you be submissive uh, one to another and clothe yourselves with humility because God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. In James chapter 4, 5 through 7, do you think that the scripture says in vain, he yearns jealously for the spirit that lives in us, but he gives us more grace. For this reason, it says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit yourselves to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. There's so much there. We're not even talking about that verse tonight, but there's so much there. You see that, that in, in pride, you won't submit yourself to God. Uh, and, but he says, uh, if you, you know, it really gives you, begins to give you a portrait of the contrast between a humble life and a proud life, be, be, between the heart that resists God and won't submit to him and therefore is resisted by God and the heart that is received by God and therefore is given grace to uh, be able to resist the enemy. Now we see, we, we actually read about it from Isaiah. It was pride that brought Satan low. Satan began to say, to say to himself, as we read it earlier, I, I'm not content to be one of the top three archangels because you understand the devil was not always the devil. The devil at one time was one of the archangels, very high in the hierarchy of the angels. And, and he said, I'm not content to be there, one of the top three archangels. I want to exalt my throne above God. I want to exalt my throne uh, above the stars. I want to be as God and I want to be above God. And you can take that idea, that, that attitude, that pride, and you can trace that string of pride through every place down through history where pride is revealed in its effect. You go all the way back to the Garden of Eden with what was, uh, when you go there, what was the initial temp line of temptation with Adam and Eve? And many people get confused and, and they have a confused and distorted view of this. They, they think that the temptation of Adam and Eve had something to do with lust, but it had absolutely nothing to do with lust. I think many people uh, think that because we read in Scripture that they were naked. But here's the thing. At the point of their, in, their temptation, they weren't even aware of their nakedness. They were naked and not ashamed. So that wasn't the point of their temptation. It didn't have anything to do with sex at all. Pride caused the fall of man. Listen to this. How were they tempted? Genesis 3, 5. This is the, the, the serpent, the devil speaking. God knows that on the day you eat of it, speaking of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, your eyes will be opened. And what's those last words? And you will be like God. 
You will be like God. That is the essence of sin. In, in all false religion, in, in cults, in false teaching, in marital breakups, in church squabbles, that's the root of it all. Uh, because in essence, every sin that I commit is me taking Godship in my own life and me saying, I will do what I think is right and what I want. Pride is always tied to contention and rebellion. Whenever there is disruption, anger, or bitterness, there's pride. Whenever teenagers or children turn on their parents, or husbands turn on their wives, or wives turn on their husbands, when churches rupture, it's always because of pride. It's always about who's going to be in charge, who's going to have the power, which boils down to an issue of pride. It's an issue of pride that says, I'm no longer willing to be in submission I will exalt my throne above God. The, the basketball team that decides they don't need the coach, the, the church that decides they don't, they no longer need the elders, the, the elders that decide they no need, no longer need to listen to the pastor, the school teachers that decide that they're going to cast off the principal, the principal that decides that he or she will no longer listen to the board of education, the board of education that decides they don't need to listen to the voters anymore. It's always an issue of pride and self-exaltation. Furthermore, pride will always be at the essence of false teachings, religiously speaking. And I just want to say this in passing because this is not really the, the, the crux of what I'm teaching on the night, but I just offer this to you. Some people may not like that, like it, but the, the problem is it's just simply the truth. But here it is. One of the great areas of error in much, not all, but much of the prevailing teaching uh, coming from the hyper-faith movement is, is that it finds its foundation in pride. M much of it is boils down to how can I run my own universe by the things that I speak, by the things that I confess, by the things that I do. It, it basically, in much of it, finds its foundation stone in pride. It appeals to pride. It panders to pride. And I've become more and more aware of this as the more I study the scripture, the longer I walk with the Lord, I become more and more aware of this. I hear things taught that elevate self under the guise of spirituality and faith. I hear things taught that elevate the position of man and focus on the position of man without focusing on the position of Christ and the greatness of Christ. And it gets us off. I, I, there was a man that was teaching at a conference one time, and he said this. He said something along the lines of, Jesus was made lower than the angels so that I might be made greater than the angels. And he went on and he said, Jesus intended that I have the authority of God over angels. Now I hear that, or something like that, and I can't help but say to myself, where have I heard that before? Wherever, that sounds an awful lot like you will be like God. Jesus did not die so that you will be glorified. He died so that in redeeming you, he will be glorified. Now, does that mean that, I mean, we know that we will be glorified We'll have glorified bodies. We're going to, we're going to be changed. We're going to be like Jesus, but that's not the, that's not the point of it. The point of what Jesus has done and the point of scripture is that Jesus will ultimately be glorified in all of these things. And, and, and when, when I am less concerned about humble, about how humble and submitted I can be to God, and I'm more concerned about how much authority I have over angels or whatever, then I'm here to tell you that that shift has begun, that ship has begun to list a little bit, that train has begun to go off the rails. You see the difference here, what I'm talking about? Uh, it, it may be that God will give me authority in the kingdom. In fact, I know scripture does teach that I have authority as a believer in Christ in the kingdom. But here's the thing. If my authority in the kingdom becomes the foundation stone of my teaching and the basis of my life witness and the way I live, then it begins to drift off course and pride will gradually begin to enter in more and more and more and more. And when that happens, you'll hear more and more talk uh, at that level about the authority of the believer, about my position in Christ, about who I am in Jesus. And, and, and listen, there is truth in that. 
But that's not the focus of the gospel. The, the focus gets misplaced. I ought not be worrying so much about who I am in Christ and worrying much more about who he is in me. The focus has to be on him, not on me. The focus has to be on what he can do, not what I can do. The focus has to be on his power, not on my power. The focus has to be on his authority, not on my authority. And yes, there is truth in, in much of what they say. There's a grain of truth. There's a nugget of to- truth at the, at the core of it. But, but when the focus gets off and, and we, we begin to say, well, but it's, there's truth there. Well, here's what we need to understand that, that uh, there was truth in what Satan was saying to Adam and Eve. That's, that's why Satan is so good. The, the greatest temptations and the greatest lies always will carry within it a grain of truth. That, that's just the reality of it. What, what, it, what happened? He said to them, you will be like God. Well, what's the truth in that? Well, a couple of ways. First of all, he goes on and he says, you'll be, God, be like God knowing good and evil. So you're going to gain some knowledge and in that greater knowledge, you'll become more like God in that way. But, but here's the real truth. Here's the real truth. You ever thought about this? They were already like God in that they were living, they were alive in sinless perfection. They had not, they, they, that was who they were. That's, they were like God in that way already. And Satan lied to them and said, now if you do this, you, you really want to be like God, just listen to me. But pride does not make me like God. When I begin to exalt myself and begin to lift myself up, then I begin to experience that which will actually destroy the state in which God has me. Now listen, there, there is one clear way of detecting pride in our lives. Here, Listen. Pride is, at every level, unteachable. If you, if you have ever met anybody that knows it all, that you can't tell them anything, that's a pride issue. It, pride despises instruction and it hates authority. This is a the general spirit of pride. And I believe one of the spirits of of America, and I'm not talking about just the attitude, I'm talking about the spirit. One of the spirits of America is the spirit that despises authority, any authority, all authority. And I believe I believe that the most dangerous thing to be in America today is a person with any kind of authority. And, and I don't think that people e- even fully understand the dynamic that's at work in them to to want to tear down anyone that's in authority to want to bring them down, uh, you know, with this this unwholesome, generally rebellious attitude toward authority, you know, but but it's there. I, I think I think you'll agree with me here. One of the most dangerous jobs in America is to be a police officer. And it's, and it's not just because they're out there fighting crime. It's because they are a visible uh, representation of authority. Even, even, if, even if you're not, you know, like a, a beat cop going and responding, if you're a tra- even just a traffic cop is a dangerous place to be. Think about it. You're standing in the middle of the street directing people in powerful automil- automobiles to go in directions that they don't want to go. And they see you as an authority figure and the demons inside of them are raging in rebellious hate. We, we, can't, we can't pay our cops, even our traffic cops enough. We just can't. And after traffic cop, by the way, one of the most dangerous jobs in America is to be a pastor. It comes right after. No, I'm just kidding. No, I'm just kidding on that one. However, I, I do believe that there is a general spirit of rebellion and that is rooted in pride in America. Uh, there's a general spirit in America that is unteachable, that says, you can't tell me anything. And, you know, I believe there are a lot of reasons for the decline of educational excellence in America, many, many reasons. The disorder in public schools is one reason for the decline of educational excellence in America. The, the profound lack of discipline is another reason for it, which, by the way, is not the teacher's fault because their hands have been tied by the lawyers in most situations. 
That's another reason for it. However, I would believe this, and you can disagree with me, but this is what I believe. I believe that, that, that there is a spiritual reason that is greater than any of those other reasons. And I believe that the greatest cause of the decline of educational excellence in America is that there is an unteachable spirit in America. There, there's an unteachable rebellious pride. You can't tell me anything. I don't care what you think you know. You can't tell me anything. You know, pride also leads to deception. It, it leads to a kind of spiritual deception, which is phenomenally destructive. I, I'd like you to go with me just for a moment to the porch of King David's palace in Jerusalem. As he looks down onto Bathsheba bathing in the moonlight, She's, she's so beautiful. And certainly sexual lust is, is in operation here, but, uh, 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 but there's also a passage of scripture that is often overlooked in the story of the fall of David into sin, into sexual sin with Bathsheba. That verse is this in 1 Chronicles chapter 20, verse 1. It says, Now at the beginning of the year when kings would go out to war, Joab led the army and just devastated the land of the Ammonites. He came and besieged Rabbah. Well, what does it say? But David remained in Jerusalem. That was where the decline and fall of King David began. David came to a place where he said, I have reached such an exalted position that the normal rules of operation no longer apply to me. Yes, this is the time when kings go out, but that does not apply to me. And at that point, Pride had ushered him into a highly vulnerable, indefensible position where a spiritual attack was completely inevitable because David had said, I'm in such an elite position that the normal rules don't apply to me. And I heard about a, a massive church a number of years ago that, that just crashed and burned because the spirit of proud elitism entered into its pastoral staff. They began to believe that they were not subject to the same rules of sexual morality that the common peon in the pew was subject to. And when that happened, they began to teach on what they said were kingdom relationships. Yeah, everybody say, yeah, right. And their, their attitude was, if you get it to the exalted position where we are, where your spirit is up here, then, then it's okay. Normal people can't do this. If, it's, if normal people do this, then it's fornication and adultery. But once you get to the, this place of exalted spirituality, the rules don't apply to us anymore. I'm here to tell you, at that moment, Ichabod was written over the door of that church. And if you know the history of that, Ichabod is, means the glory has departed. You can see it in David. The Bible gives us some details concerning the events that led up to David's sexual sin with Bathsheba. And we're going to see how pride played into all of this and how he thought that, that, the, that he could play fast and loose with the rules. 2 Samuel 11, chapter 11, verse 4. After David saw Bathsheba, he had already, he, he, he should have turned away. He should have, he should have done something. To, he should have walked away from the sin, but instead... This is what he does. Then David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him and he lay with her for she was cleansed from her impurity and she returned to her house. Here, here's, there's a passage in there. There's a little line when it says, for she was cleansed. He lay with her for she was cleansed from her impurity. Now, what does that passage mean when it says she was cleansed from her impurity? Well, I don't, I don't want to offend anybody, but this is referring to the old Jewish laws about, of cleanness and uncleanness. And when a woman, for example, uh, had her monthly period, then she was unclean for, for a period of seven days before. And if she had sexual relations with a man during that period before she was clean, then the man would be made unclean. And, and, and if you're reading through the Bible with us, we just went through a lot of those regulations just as in our reading plan. Well, what that tells us then is that Bathsheba had gone through that necessary time from the end of her period until now she was, by Jewish law, legally able to have sex with a man without him becoming ceremonially unclean. Okay, so here's the question. How did David know that she had been cleansed from her impurity? 
It's simple. He knew because he asked her. He knew because he asked her. Do you get it here? Do you see what's happening? David wanted to make sure that he would not be made unclean while he committed adultery with her. Hello? Are we communicating here? I'm going to commit sin, but I want to make sure that I carry out my religion. You say, that's bizarre. No, that's pride. Pride always leads into deception. Pride is able to hatch plots, to develop conspiracies, to act in immoral ways, to make up excuses, to come up with ways to, to, to convince yourself that the rules don't apply to you. It, it comes up, uh, pride is able to act in strife and bitterness and contention and fight authority and drag down and argue and bicker over minor parts of, points of doctrine that don't amount to a hill of beans. And in the end, you still feel justified in all of it because you can say, but I'm legally right. Technically, I'm right. Pride is unreachable, it's intractable, it is presumptuous, and is unteachable. Pride is the opposite of everything that is in 1 Corinthians 13, which we know is the love chapter. We'll come back to that. A teenage girl starts out the door and the mom shouts after her, Now you drive carefully, honey, you be careful. Don't do anything. Don't do anything you shouldn't do. And, and she, that little girl, cocks, just cocks her little hip and sarcastically says, whatever. Why don't you trust me? Get off my back. Well, at that moment, what she doesn't realize is that the spirit of satanic rebellion from, from the from the, the, before the dawn of human history in the throne room of God, where Lucifer, the son of morning, said, I will exalt my throne above God, that that same spirit is moving through the spiritual dimension and it, to be imprinted on her little bl blonde, blue-eyed face. And she can't imagine it. But the fact of the matter, when she says, get off my back, she looks just like the devil. When that teacher says, everybody, please take your seats, and some kid gives a smart remark and refuses to take their assigned seat, he looks like the devil. The stamp of satanic rebellion is on his head. And you say, well, those are silly examples. Yes, but you got to understand, pride doesn't start full-blown. It starts with the grumbling when you're, when you're, as a teenager, when you're told to take out the trash and the whole way you're talking about what a jerk your dad is on the way out behind his back. See, see, pride is the announcement of self-ownership and self-authorship. You ever hear somebody say, I'm a self-made man? Well, that's a declaration of pride because there's nobody a self-made man. Even if you don't believe in God, there are a lot of people that built into your life. It is the pride is the enunciation of my own preexistence and, the, and my, my own sovereignty over my own life. Pride is the opposite of the statement from Scripture where it says we are his creation. We are the sheep of his pasture. You know, I mean, what is the spirit behind the philosophy of, of humanism? When you talk about humanism, that's not a word that's thrown around as much anymore, but it's still the root of much of what's going on in the world. Humanism basically is a, is a viewpoint that tries to explain life solely through the eyes of humans without God. And, and so what is the spirit behind that? And, and I'm not talking about the intellectual, intellectual or apologetic defense. What is the spirit behind humanism? The spirit is, we have made ourselves. We have made ourselves. There is no God. There is no creator. There is no judge. Humanism says that there is no one to whom we must answer because we made ourselves and we can perfect ourselves. Humanism is what tells you you know, I mean, this is what at the root of so many of the problems we have in our nation right now, because there are people out there that think 
that we as humans, if we can just get, if they get the right people in power and have the right people calling the shots, which by the way, the right people always, when they're saying it, it's always me, <laughs> you know, when they're saying that, that, that they say we can, if we just, if we just eliminate injustice, then all of a sudden people are just going to behave. We're not going to have crime anymore. That's humanism saying we made ourselves and we can perfect ourselves. We can fix this on our own. It is the idolatry of self. Now, in the process of that, what happens is, and boy, you will see this in our culture today, what happens is we begin to idolize our feelings, our desires. Now listen to this. We think pride is, my feelings are more important than yours because they're more valid. But that's not pride. If anything, you could say that's just mild manner and arrogance, but that's not real pride. Real pride says, my feelings are more important than yours because they're mine. What I feel is more important than what you feel. What I'm experiencing is more important than what you're experiencing. I am the center, I'm not only the center of my universe, but I demand to be the center of your universe. I'm telling you, you, if you watch the news, if you watch what's going on, you will see this all over the place because everybody says, you know, I'm offended by that. Well, they don't care if what they're doing is offending anybody else. Because the whole point is, my feelings matter more than you. What you feel doesn't make any difference. This, the root of that is pride. It's the attitude that says, I want you to be more consumed with what I'm feeling than with what you're feeling. And all, all the married couples need to hear this. You know, in marriage counseling, 99% of all marriage counseling comes down to this. And I've seen it over and over and over again. Both husband and wife wanting the other to experience what they're experiencing as a fundamental reality of the universe. If I've heard it once, I've heard it a, a thousand times in marriage counseling. You just don't understand what I'm feeling. Well, the truth is, they might, they just might not care. <laughs> the psychology of sin is this. If, if I idolize my own emotions, if I make my feelings and my, uh, uh, and my experience, if I make those things my God, the things that control me, then I become ruled by dominated by, in bondage to, and guided by what I feel. This is our world today. And that, by the way, is a self-actualizing neurosis. What, what I feel is God, therefore God is what I feel. And if I feel bad, then God is bad and the world gets worse. And I, I, I'm under dominion uh, now to the, to the despair that I feel, so I gradually sink under the weight of my own goal. I feel bad, so the universe is coming to an end. But the problem, here's the problem with it, and this is where people get all upset today. The problem is that other people around us have the unmitigated, unmitigated audacity to have a good day. How dare they have a good day when I'm so miserable? Because my feelings should matter more than anything else. So the neurosis under which I'm living in that moment, out of which I'm operating, guided by the fact of my pride that says I'm the center of, of my own universe, I idolize my own feelings, that neurosis now makes me angry at those around me who are pretending to be happy who, when God is obviously in a bad mood. We, we see the same thing in, in modern Western understanding of art, our, our understanding of aesthetics. Now, this may be a wee bit controversial, but I just offer it to you. Think of it like this. If I am the center of my universe and what I think, feel, experience, and understand is the great truth, and that's our culture today, because everybody wants to say, well, that's your truth. That's not my truth, because I want to define truth by just what I feel. If that's the case, if I am God, then you see, I don't have to believe that my painting is better than yours. That's irrelevant. The, the thing that makes it good is that it's mine. It doesn't matter if it's better. Therefore, 
I must deny all normal rules of line, order, uh, beauty, and, and, and aesthetics. Hence, I can then write a symphony that is patently inharmonious. That's a real fancy way of saying it sounds all jumbled together and doesn't sound good together. It's jarring. It's harsh. It's unmelodious. But it's beautiful because I wrote it and it's an expression of my feelings. I can paint a picture that is a picture of nothing but the disordered confusion in my own neurotic mind, but it, it is art because I am God, so I get to decide. You know, this, you, you ever wonder how, you know, there are few, several, many years ago now, you, you may remember the con, some of the controversies where they had this art dis, uh, uh, d, uh, display going on and some person had put a crucifix in a jar of urine and said, that's art. Well, that's because in their own pride, they said, this is what I feel, and so therefore it must be great. Therefore, you see, pride can never really create beauty because pride denies order and discipline and humble submission to normal, normal guidelines that define what is beautiful. See, what Satan cannot create. I don't know if you ever thought, God's the only one that can create. Satan cannot create. He lives in frustrated futile impotence. He longs to create, but all he can do is destroy. He longs to give birth to beauty, but all he can do is kill. Pride, therefore, always brings us through our self-exaltation into a confused, disordered, impotent despair. But you know, there's also an unreality in pride. Pride enters into a kind of mad fearlessness. You see this, uh, especially at, at the greater extreme, ex extremes. This is, this is what leads to like Jim Jones and David Koresh and those sort of things. And, and again, I'm going to say something that, that may be a wee bit controversial, so stay with me. On, but I'll say this. I, I'm not saying that all emotional illness is the result of sin. However, I'm, I am going to say to you that a huge portion of emotional illness is the direct manifestation of pride. The reason for that being, if I have exalted myself to a place where I am God, it enters into a kind of madness where I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me becomes monstr monstrously abbreviated to just simply, I can do all things. I can walk on water by faith becomes horrifyingly shortened to, I can walk on, God or, on water because I'm God. I can do anything. The difference between what we call normal, everyday, adolescent, rebellious pride and, and a David Koresh, if we're honest about it, if we want to be, look at the, the, real, the reality of it, the difference is of between those two is a membrane that is fragile and easily penetrated. If I don't need my mother and father, then the next step is I don't need the law and I don't need society and then I don't need rules and I don't need regulations and I don't need God. And if I don't need God, then I'm, I am God. And if I am God, then you need me. And that's where you become David Koresh. That's where you become Jim Jones. Just sends a chill down your spine. The problem is that once that train is set in, a mo in motion downhill, it is very difficult to stop it at any point in the downward slide. What happens is an unreality. If I'm God, then what can touch me? You, you see it manifested, maybe not to that extreme, but you see it manifested in some criminals. You know, there are some criminals in prison with brilliant minds, master criminals, who, who never should have been caught, frankly. But they were caught through, through unbelievably stupid things. For example, there are men in prison <coughs> who, who documented their crimes with photographs and kept them on, in files in their offices. Later on, somebody talking to them in prison would say, didn't, didn't it dawn on you that they might like use your photographs as evidence against you? Did, did that cross your mind? You know what they say nearly every single time? Can you guess? I never thought they'd get me. I never thought I'd get caught. I thought I was too smart. I never thought they'd get me. 
What is that madness? It, It is in its seminal stage, the same madness that a second grader looks into his father's eyes and with, and says guilelessly as a, as a, as a dove, no, I didn't break the lamp. No, I was just sitting here and this great huge pink elephant came through the room and broke the lamp and went out the back door and it'll look you right in the eye and say that to you. Have you, have you ever seen that? Something like that? You, you can look right in a child's face, just as pure as the driven snow, little tiny angels, and they're lying to you. Just lying their little tails off. And you say to yourself, doesn't this child know? No, he doesn't know that he's going to get caught because to an extent, in a tiny little way, and I know you find it horrible for me to link a you know, criminal with a God complex like David Koresh with a six-year-old, But the problem is it's the same river. Maybe at different stages of power and different stages of force, but it's the same river of pride that is flowing through that says, I can get away with it. It's that denial of reality, that that edge of madness that's found in sin. Because sin is a little crazy, isn't it? Psalm 14.1, this is what it says. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Which, by the way, that verse there tells me that atheists do have a holiday. It's April Fool's Day. (laughs) But here's the thing. If the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. If that's foolish, then what about the guy who says there is a God? And I believe he is righteous. And I believe he is the judge. I believe that he sees everything that I do but I'm still going to commit this adultery anyway. Sin is a little crazy. What is it then? It's the madness of pride. If I can do all things, then who can touch me? Who will catch me? Who will watch me? Who will arrest me? Who will judge me? I will exalt my throne above heaven. I will exalt uh, uh, my, my, my throne above the stars of God. I can walk on water. I can lie to my parents and not get caught. I can resist authority and never be held accountable. I can break any rule and not ever be caught. That's the pathology of pride. Pride is not merely the wrong self-estimation of myself. That, that, that may be vanity. Vanity is is like kindergarten pride is what that's like. It's, it's not really, you know, full blown pride. It's if, but if you'll stay with it long enough, it can turn into it. Vanity is, is like the, the seventh grade girl who stands in the hallway looking at a full length mirror and thinking how beautiful she is. It's not really pride, but it is vanity. Real pride says I'm the most beautiful woman in the world. Not because my body meets, meets any standard of beauty, but because I'm me. I'm beautiful because I'm me. Now, I'll say this. The measure of beauty is not some outward standard that the world gives, and it's not me either. When I look in the mirror, I can say that I have beauty and value because I'm made in the image of God. It's the the exaltation of self. That is real sin. Pride is the rebellious enthronement of myself. And of course, the worst kind of pride of all is spiritual pride. Spiritual pride says that I'm at a higher level than anybody else, or that I understand at a higher level than anybody else has ever even begun to understand. The the proud in heart will be those in the congregation who know more or at least think they know more than everybody else. Well, you may think you understand this, but I'm going to, I'm the one who really gets this. You see this occasionally from, from teachers in churches where they say, well, you know, all of, all of history of Christianity says this, but I'm going to tell you what it really means. That's, that's kind of a scary place to be. That, that's pride, religious pride, and it's the worst, most despicable, and one of the most dangerous of all forms of, of pride. Spiritual pride says, I am something greater than you are. I have attained to some level that you have not. I have comprehended something or understood something that you have not. But here's the thing about this knowledge. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 8, 1, knowledge puffs up. And he's talking about the blatant Gnosticism. You remember, that's a word we, we, we taught on in the past. You remember Gnosticism? 
It's the, it's the belief where you gain this special knowledge that makes you somehow greater. It elevates you. And that was, and that's the whole idea behind it. And that's what Paul is talking about of, uh, the, the, the blatant Gnosticism of having learned some secret insight that all the rest of the peons around you can't really see and can't un- understand, can't attain to. You know, when you hear voices like that in your church or in your Sunday school class or on radio or on Facebook or in, on TikTok or in a podcast where, where some teacher or other person in the body of Christ, Christ has some elitist, arrogant, condescending view uh, uh, that, that are constantly talking about how wonderful they are and pointing attention to them or talking about how wonderful their ministry is or whatever. And or they're constantly watching for anybody to say something with which they disagree uh, and, and they're just waiting for you to use a word wrongly, uh, not because they're wanting to instruct you or inform you or edify the body of Christ, but simply because they want to call you out. Why? Because in calling you out, they, it builds their own ego. They exalt themselves above you and it's spiritual pride. Now then, to the extreme, let's go back to the idea of David Koresh, Jim Jones, to the extreme, what it wants to do, finally, is to gather to itself disciples that will exalt them as well. They, they will manifestly prove to him or her what they already know about themselves, that they're better than everybody else, that they know more than everybody else, that they've comprehended more than anybody else, and they've attained to a higher level than anybody else in the world. Spiritual pride will always have a kind of centripetal force. Okay, that's that's the word. How many of you remember from your science classes? Because you may, you, you may not remember centripetal force, but you might remember its opposite. Anybody know what centrifugal force is? You know what I'm talking about? Like, like a centrifugal force, like if I had a, a rock on a string and I start spinning it around, I don't know why I'd have a rock on a string, but I got one. So I'm spinning it around, okay? If I let go of that string, what happens? The rock just takes off. Centrifugal force is the force that makes, when something is spinning, it makes it want to go away from the center. It's the force that pushes it away from center, okay? So if I'm spinning it around, that centrifugal force. Centripetal force is the opposite of that. It's the force that draws objects toward the center. It is, for example, it is centripetal force that keeps the earth moving along its orbital path because the gravity of the sun is the centripetal force that constantly draws the earth towards the center of its orbital path. So the sun's constantly pulling us toward itself, but then you have in balance with that, the sun is, the, the world is also revolving around the sun very fast, and that creates what other kind of force? Centrifugal force. And so you have a balance between the two, and it's the, it's the combination of the two that keeps the earth on a perfect orbital balance, the perfect orbital path that the only path that will sustain life on the earth. Which, by the way, some scientists will say, well, that was just an accident. Yeah, right. So uh, all that to, the, to help you understand, get a mental, better mental picture of the effect of spiritual pride on people. When you sense spiritual pride, it will always carry centripetal force that draws into the center, that's constantly pulling toward the person, constantly pulling toward the teacher that's always about them. You'll see a whirlwind of centripetal force that is constantly sucking in toward the person at the center. It's an inverse tornado of spiritual pride. Look to me, admire, admire me, be in awe of me, submit to me, yield to me, believe me, follow me. I am the greatest. I am a prophet. I need, you need to listen to me, me, me. And hence you eventually create the Jim Jones, David Koresh syndrome. However, the truth is it happens at lesser levels in varying degrees in congregations all over America all the time. And we lightheartedly call it church arguments. No, it is the presence of the enemy. It is satanic. It happens in homes and in families. More than one husband 
has actually left his wife, not because of sexual immorality or unfaithfulness, but because he could not be God in the home. Have you ever noticed it? Everything's just kind of percolating along as, and everything's just hunky-dory as, as long as they're both sort of half backslidden. But then one of them, you know, if they really lay hold of the hem of Jesus' garment and, and sell out to God, then all of a sudden, very often, the other one will respond with almost immediate anger. Why is that? Well, it's because if God is God in your life, then now I can't be God in your life. It's pride. If, if, if you won't be sucked into the maelstrom of my pride and my ego, if, if you won't worship me, if you won't let me be the center of your life, then I must destroy you, devour you, or get rid of you. I mean, listen, isn't that what atheistic tyranny does? You look at, you look at communist regimes and the, and the millions of people that have been killed. Well, it says, if you won't bend the, the knee to Caesar then Caesar will throw you to the lions. Pride is argumentative, bickering, self-centered, self-exalting, rebellious, hateful toward authority, intractable, unteachable, unreachable, and without peace. God says in Proverbs 16, I hate haughty eyes. And he says in the same chapter, uh, everyone who is, or actually I think it was chapter 16, he says everyone who, who is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. So, what is the opposite of pride? Let's conclude by reading 1 Corinthians 13. I'm going to read it to you from my translation, and then we'll conclude with this as a prayer. But I'll just say this. The love of Jesus is the opposite of all the things that pride is. Do we find Jesus to be cold and hard and judgmental and unteachable and intractable and arrogant and elitist? Absolutely not. Here is the opposite of pride. If I speak with the tongues of men and angels and have not love, I have become as sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. In other words, I just make a bunch of noise. If I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so that I can remove mountains and have not love, I am nothing. Well, that's a huge statement to many of us in the Pentecostal charismatic world because we tend to exalt the gifts when it's all about the fruit. Verse 3, if I give all my goods to feed the poor and if I give my body to be burned and have not love, it profits me nothing. Love suffers long, which means it's patient and is kind. Kind to brothers and sisters, kind to children, kind to parents, kind to other church members with whom you disagree, kind to people who do things that hurt you. Love is kind. Love envies not. Love not, love flaunts not itself. In other words, it doesn't make itself the center of attention and is not puffed up. Does not behave itself improperly or in, or you could say is willing to abide by the rules. Behave improper, itself improperly means I respect no rules seeks not its own or its own advantage, is not easily provoked. Now, pride is easily provoked. You know, if you touch pride, you're going to have a war in your hands in a minute. It thinks no evil. In other words, it doesn't project evil onto others. It expects the best instead of expecting the worst. Rejoices not in iniquity. Oh, pride now. Pride loves to see another person fall into sin because it justifies them in their assumed garb, garb of self-righteousness. But rejoices in the truth. That means when, tr- when truth is brought to bear on every lie. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Love never fails. Now, by never fails... It means that it never runs out. It does not mean that love never fails to accomplish its goal. It means that there's no end to love, that it's a bottomless resource. Love never runs out. But if there are prophecies, they shall fail. If there are tongues, they shall cease. If there is knowledge, it shall vanish. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect comes, then that which is imperfect shall pass away. When I was a child, I spoke as a child, rebelliously, uh, uh, unseemly, impatiently, unkindly, resisting authority. Isn't, isn't that like a child? 
I understood as a child and I thought as a child, but when I became a man, I put away childish things like rebellion. For now we see as through a glass dimly. In other words, we just don't see the full image yet. But then face to face. Now I know in part. And in knowing that, it makes me humble. I know in part. But then I shall know even as I'm also uh, also I'm known. So abide, so now abide faith, hope, and love, these three. But the greatest of these is love. Let's pray. Father, keep us from a prideful heart. And it's so easy, it's so insidious. Pride sneaks in and we begin to think about ourselves in ways that, that, are, that are far too elevated and we begin to center our lives on ourselves and, and we forget that it's all about you. So, and God, we know that pride is so insidious because it's so hard to see in ourselves. But Lord, show us. If there's pride there, show us. If we're unteachable, show us, God. And Lord, help us to humble ourselves under, underneath your hands so that, so that you can teach us, we can learn of you, and you can lift us up. And Lord, I pray that you would help us, help us to maintain humility before you because God, we want to walk in love, not in pride. And love always seeks what other people need, it gives of itself. Not, it's not about what I want, what I need, what I feel. So Lord, I pray you'd help us. Reveal any pride that's in us. Help us, Lord God, not to push it away, not to fight with you on this, but simply say, okay, God, I see it. Now, now, now what do I need to do, God? Show me what I need to do. And Lord, I pray that we would just res- would respond in obedience. And Lord, I pray that if we, if, as we witness pride around us, it's so easy, God, to begin to point the finger and say, oh, look at them, they're so prideful. But God, in that moment, we begin to elevate ourselves. But instead, God, when we see that, let us be humble, And let us humbly fall on our knees and begin to pray and say, oh God, do your work. Do your work in them and in me. Help us to walk in humble submission to you and to all that you are. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.